0: The Get Real Indie Filmcast, with Jeffrey Michael Bays and Forrest Day Jr. Welcome to the Get Real Indie Filmmaker Podcast, and uh, we had so much fun <laughs> on our Halloween episode last time with Jennifer Dornbush, and the skeletons in the closet, and and all of the fun forensic speak, um, that Forrest decided to go on vacation, so... He's not on the show today, but uh, uh, today we have Morgan Sandler coming out uh, in just a few minutes, the author of Visual Storytelling. Now, this is something that I have been talking about for a long time Um, with my Hitchcock classes and my book, Suspense with a Camera, as well, is that when film first began, all of these filmmakers had to learn by necessity to tell a story with visuals and not use any dialogue whatsoever. And so they did it. They figured out how to, to point things out with the camera and how the shots will tell a, uh, a sentence, what I call a visual sentence, shot by shot, by editing certain shots together in a sequence to tell a visual story. And Morgan Sandler has a book, Now, this is a fascinating book because he talks, he goes even into lighting and how how to light a scene and how to tell a story through light and how, how to tell a story through uh, depth of field and that sort of thing. So this is going to be a really fascinating interview. I'm very excited to have him on the show. And Forrest will actually be with us during that interview because it is, it is actually a recorded interview that we did a few weeks ago. Coming up in um, a few weeks is we're going to have Mara Lessman back. Because she has so many fascinating things to say. She's an indie producer, a producer of Surviving Family and Detours. Not to be confused with William Dickerson's movie, Detour. And not to be confused with the TV series, The Detour. But she's going to come back and talk more about producing. She's got more fascinating things to talk about. We are, we're always learning from Mara Lesman And learning from all of our other guests as well. You can tweet us at BorgesFilm or email info at Borges.com. We're always interested in hearing what you want to talk about and what you're concerned about as a filmmaker. Because uh, we're just like you. We're independent filmmakers struggling to make films just like everyone else. And so we're, we're trying to bring on guests that um, sort of answer these burning questions that we have. And so if there's something in particular that you want to hear about, that you want, to, you want to learn more about, we've got access to dozens and dozens of experts that we can bring on the show at a moment's notice. So uh, feel free to reach out if you want to hear from uh, one of your favorite authors about filmmaking. Uh, we'll try to get them on the show. We'd love to have those guests on the show. So, we do have a little bit of an update on a story that we uh, were talking about a long time ago. Way back on episode three, we talked about the Apu script contest, and Adi Shankar was holding the script contest to, to find the perfect Simpsons script for the Apu character to change the character because uh, he is now deemed offensive as an Indian stereotype. And some things have happened in that, in that saga. <laughs> in fact, the Simpsons producers have recently decided that in order to address this, they are just going to no longer include Apu in the show. So, in other words, instead of addressing it, they've just decided, well, goodbye, Apu. Apu will be no more on The Simpsons. So, in other words, just burying the whole controversy, despite the fact that they've had 30 years of episodes, hundreds of episodes, with Apu. So instead of uh, addressing the issue that was was found offensive to Indian Americans because of his accent, um, if you want to find out more about that, listen to our episode 3. Um, so what happened is that Adi Shankar actually did get a winning script and tried to uh, pitch it to the Simpsons producers, and apparently they weren't interested. <laughs> okay... Uh, the Simpsons producers um, and and there was there was a, a news article that falsely attributed Adi Shankar as a producer of The Simpsons, and so on Twitter, one of the uh, Simpsons producers said that uh, by the way, Adi Shankar is not associated with The Simpsons in any way, and so they just decided we're just not gonna we're just not gonna do any more shows with a at all. So there. <laughs> So that controversy continues, and uh, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about that, but congratulations to the uh, person that won the script contest, um, which may or may not be produced into an episode. I know Addy originally was talking about uh, producing the episode himself. The winner of the Apu contest um, was Vishal Butch, who is actually a, a doctor in Bethesda, Maryland, wrote this script, so... Congratulations to Vishal, and uh, we'll see. We'll see if uh, they end up uh, producing an independently produced fan fiction episode about Apu on The Simpsons, so we'll continue to watch that. We'll take a quick break here. We'll be right back with Morgan Sandler um, asking the question, when it comes to color, are you actually using it the right way? Is it possible to overuse color lighting on set? We'll find out about that and more with the author of visual storytelling right after this. That's one thing Alfred Hitchcock was really good at, creating suspense with a camera. For the last couple of years, I've been teaching Hitchcock suspense techniques at festivals like Buffalo, St. Louis, Palm Springs, Los Angeles. Filmmakers are learning easy tricks for building suspense that are so easy to implement. Now there's a way for you to get access in my new book, Suspense with a Camera. It's available in bookstores now. And don't miss our free docuseries on YouTube called Hitch 20. Okay, joining us now is Morgan Sandler. Uh, He has a Master of Fine Arts from California State. Currently, he's an assistant professor at the University of Laverne, And before that, he was head of cinematography at Los Angeles Film School. Now, he has a new book out. Uh, He's the author of Visual Storytelling, How to Speak to the Audience Without Saying a Word. Morgan, thanks for joining us. Thank you
1: so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here.
0: Hi, Morgan. This is Forrest.
2: Now, uh, your book, Visual Storytelling, what is visual storytelling? So
1: visual storytelling to me is, um, you know, something that I think a lot of independent filmmakers and and new filmmakers really don't consider when they're writing a screenplay and when it comes time to shoot. Uh, Visual storytelling is how we speak to the audience uh, using the visual language. So tools include your lighting, your lenses, your camera, camera movement, uh, all the different tools that we generally attribute to a cinematographer, Uh, I like to get out of that bubble and and have all filmmakers on set think in terms of visual storytelling. So, so how you're going to communicate without having to use dialogue.
2: I noticed when you talk about lighting, for instance, you had three stages of lighting and I've seen this happen. You talked about uh, like guys using black and white, uh, then going color, like really crazy colors or the the fun set, as you called it, and and then bringing it back down. Uh, Talk about and this is what I've seen, the middle level where where they're using purple gels and green gels. Uh, talk about that. And why isn't it right?
1: Oh, absolutely. So the, the main goal of any filmmaker is even more than having things look, uh, for lack of a better word, cool. You want things to be believable, because if the audience doesn't buy into the story immediately. And again, you know, visuals speak to us immediately. If the audience doesn't buy into your story uh, or buy into your images, they're not going to believe your story. So what we always want to do, and, and this is a motto I always give my students that I kind of live by, is you know, a bad cinematographer or a bad filmmaker tries to create something that just looks visually striking. A good cinematographer is somebody who tries to create something that's believable, realistic. And then a great cinematographer or filmmaker is somebody who can do both at the exact same time. So you know, when, when new filmmakers first start out, we're so used to seeing just traditional light, daylight, tungsten, um, household lights, incandescence, things like that. We're used to seeing those, but when new filmmakers start out, they're exposed to colored gels for the very first time, and now they start to create these uh, over-the-top lighting setups because they look so different than, than what they're used to seeing in reality. But as an audience member, most of the time, they're not going to believe it. They're going to instantly know that this isn't motivated and justified
2: And I've made that mistake in the past. So that's why, why, that's why it struck me. You, you actually used purple gel as an example. I'm like, yeah, I, I I thought I used the purple gel and uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Not
1: (laughs) one of the biggest things is, is finding a way to motivate it. So for example, where would purple light be coming from? You know, you have to ask yourself, and this is a mistake Mm -hmm. I made really early in my career as a filmmaker is, is lighting scenes that weren't motivated, but If you do want to use these colored gels, for example, red, red red is is a really common gel that people use, but it's not a color that appears in reality all that often. Uh, So what you have to do as a filmmaker is find a way of motivating that, whether it be a neon sign. My favorite example is uh, in the Coen Brothers film Fargo, uh, when uh, one of the killers is chasing the car down the icy road and it flips over uh, and we see the shot of the killer being just bathed in red light they're telling you it's coming from the brake lights of the car. Now, in reality, as a filmmaker, we know it's not. We know there's a light with a red gel, but it looks motivated and it feels motivated because we see the taillights of the car. So that's so important. Is something I talk a lot about in the book, is just finding ways of motivating whatever kind of lighting you want to use.
0: Mm -hmm. And you make the point in your book that a lot of directors are either afraid of these sort of technical issues or they think they don't have to know it. And uh, you make the point that, Directors should know these things, like lenses and you know aperture settings and all of this, so that they can communicate to the cinematographer.
1: Absolutely, you no. Know, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a director uh, is, you know, focusing solely on working with the actors and assuming that it's the cinematographer's responsibility to then create the images. Uh, I think, uh, you know, as you said, the most important thing you know, you don't have to n- know if you want to use an 18-millimeter lens or a 24-millimeter lens. But to be able to communicate in terms of a wide-angle lens versus a telephoto lens, I think that's really crucial because they're going to give you totally uh, totally different looks and more than that, totally different emotions. I like to say uh, every lens has a personality, and so you need to understand how that character, how that lens is going to make your characters look and, and more importantly, how the audience is going to feel about that. Now, One of the, the most important things I like to consider and I like to talk about with my students is that the audience doesn't speak the language of cinema, but they understand it on an emotional level. So they're not going to intellectualize it. They're not going to say, well, that's a, a push in on an 18 millimeter lens. And so I know you're understri- trying to make that character look awkward. They don't understand that. They just feel that this character in this moment feels awkward.
2: On the subject of wide and, and telephoto lenses, now let's go the other way. The de- using the lens, the depth of field, you, ha- you talk about that. How can that be used uh to the filmmaker's advantage who, you know, newer filmmakers might not understand depth of field.
1: Sure, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book are are my five tools for guiding the audience's eye. There are are hundreds of ways you can guide the audience's eye, but I have five that I like to use often and focus to me and depth of field is number one on that list. Uh, You know, we will not look, as a human being, we will not look at an out-of-focus image for more than a couple seconds or even less than that because it starts to hurt our eyes and it hurts our brain after a while, uh, so guiding the audience's eye, forcing them to look where you want them to, is one of the best tools you can use. And and creating a shallow depth or using a shallow depth of field to do that uh, is one of the best techniques we have.
2: Well, I I'm looking at your uh, page forty three of your book here with where you're show, showing examples of depth of field on on the piano, and uh, I, you know I'd li- discuss how, for instance. The what I see in a lot of independent films is a very flat picture. Like here's the piano, or or to use your example, or here's here are two people talking. And you know when they rack focus, um, a lot of guys don't. A lot of guys, a lot of filmmakers don't know to rack focus what that can do for your story. Um, How is that different than just a flat picture of two people talking?
1: Sure. You know, staging in depth is a really important technique that we use. Um, There are lots of different axes you can use. You can use a flat axis. You can use an axis in depth. Uh, And and having that ability to shift the focus, to change the focus is a really good way of, of, again, steering the audience in a particular direction. Uh, This is a a technique we use a lot because uh, the audience for example, we'll see a focus shift. Maybe you have a person in the foreground and they're talking about something or discussing something, and then we shift focus to the background. Uh, and what you're doing is you're forcing the audience to then look in a different place. Uh, most of the time, the audience likes to think they've figured something out. But in reality, the filmmakers have just told you exactly where they want you to look. So in a two-hour movie, and this is one of the most challenging things about being a filmmaker, in a, in a two-hour movie, you have to be able to guide the audience's eye at all moments, Uh, because if there's something happening on the left side of the frame, that's really important, but they're being distracted by something on the right side of the frame. Well, they're going to miss the important part of the frame. Mm
2: -hmm. I I think that's the key part here. You just said it guiding the viewer's eye. And I think that's what visual storytelling is more about um, guiding the eye as opposed to um, dialogue.
1: Absolutely. You know, again, it's our job as filmmakers to to tell the audience and and help the audience feel exactly how they're they're supposed to feel right when the movie opens. Uh, So an example I like to give my students is when you're watching a horror movie, for some strange reason in every horror movie, there's always a young person walking through the woods in the middle of the night by themselves, right? Which is never a good idea, but there always is. When that scene opens, you don't need that actor to tell you how scary the woods are. You just need a good filmmaker who's going to make the woods look scary. And the audience gets it. So one of the main goals of this book is to help new filmmakers figure out how to get away from using that expositional dialogue uh, and more than anything start to use these images to tell the story and make the audience feel what they need to feel in order to connect with the scene.
2: What piece of advice would you give to a new filmmaker who, um, you know, you've probably seen a lot of independent films and you've seen the mistakes. What would be the biggest mistake that you've seen and what would be your advice to correct it?
1: Geez, I've seen so many mistakes, most of which I've made myself. Uh, as I think all new filmmakers have. But the biggest piece of advice or the best piece of advice I think I can give any new filmmaker is to learn what everybody is doing on set and value what everybody's doing on set. Because ultimately, every person in a crew has a different set of responsibilities, right? Whether you're an electrician or a grip or a cinematographer or a director or a sound person, you all have a different set of responsibilities, but everybody has the exact same job. And that job is to make a cohesive film. Uh, and to create the exact same film. If everyone's not telling the same story, you're not going to have a successful film. Uh, So I think that any good filmmaker, especially a director, it's really their responsibility to learn what everybody else is doing, not to do their job for them. The last thing you want to do is micromanage everybody else. Um, But one of the best things you can do is learn what they're doing. So like I say in the book, so you can communicate with your cinematographer, you can communicate with your sound person uh, or your editor, and you know exactly exactly how to achieve the best possible film.
2: Now your book's on sale already, right, Morgan? It is. Yes. Do you see this, the book getting bigger as time goes? Cause it's, it's actually a short book, but it covers a lot of information. Do you see yourself expanding upon it?
1: So I, I see myself possibly, like, like you said, the book isn't particularly long because I wanted to make it palatable. Essentially. It's what I teach in my introductory course, right? It's what I think every mm-hmm. filmmaker, beginning filmmaker needs to know uh, to be able to complete a successful film, or at least to be able to begin a successful film. Uh, so I think there's always room to expand what I see myself doing, because most most filmmaking textbooks uh, cover one specific topic, right? They'll cover directing or cinematography or screenwriting. Uh, this right. kind of encompasses all the different avenues of, of telling a story visually. So my future plan is to write uh, singular books about the different topics. So, so in the works right now, I've, I've just started a book about cinematography specifically, uh, which will be a much more in depth study of cinematography where this book goes into the components of cinematography, but not so much the in depth, uh, tools and techniques that, that one would need to really master the art of cinematography.
2: And how can people get a hold of you if they'd like to, uh, discuss something with you directly yeah absolutely
1: i always welcome any questions from from filmmakers Yeah, you know, as i'm sure you can tell i can talk about film all day long it's my favorite topic to discuss uh just like you guys i'm sure so if anybody has any questions they can they can reach me at m at laverne.edu that is my direct email address at the university of laverne and, and i'm happy to, to answer any questions i possibly can about the book or, or just filmmaking in general
0: Morgan Sandler, author of Visual Storytelling, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. That's our show for this week. Be sure to listen to previous episodes. We have 16 other episodes you can listen to all about filmmaking. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is created by Forrest Day Jr., also the host of Rolling Tape on YouTube, and by me, Jeffrey Michael Bayes, author of Suspense with a Camera and Between the Scenes, available in bookstores now. And... Uh, <laughs> Safe travels to Mr. Forrest Day, which will be back with us, hopefully, on our next episode as he drives back to Massachusetts. (laughs) So until next time, thanks for listening. The Get Real Indie Filmcast is a production of Borges Networks 2018.